here, if you would, turn to Ezra chapter 3, that's before the book of Psalms, in case you're wondering. Go there and go left, and then we'll be in Haggai in just a moment. So we began to walk through this minor prophet, uh, Haggai, last week. It's two chapters, and he has a specific role in the life of the nation that is really important and plays such an important part um, as they have come back to settle the land after the Babylonian and Persian captivity. One of the men that brought them back, as a matter of fact, was actually the leader of the first wave of the remnant that came back, is a guy named Zerubbabel, and we'll read about him today. He is the last remaining uh, descendant of the last legitimate king of Judah. His name was Jeconiah, and he is a descendant of him. Uh, He is in line with uh, Josiah, and Zerubbabel is in the line of Jesus. Jesus eventually um, comes through this line um, with him. And let me just read this passage. This is, this is Matthew's gospel, Matthew one eleven. It says, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, and at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And so one of these characters just plays a really important role uh, in the life of Christ. So look with me in Ezra chapter 3. Um, right now, and then I want to just give us a little bit more background to the context of where we are when we get to the book of Haggai um, in a moment. So uh, Ezra 3, verse 8. So now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Yeshua the son of Jehozadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. And they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad, and the Levites and their sons and brothers. Now look at verse 10. This is real critical. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. Now I want to stop there just for a moment, and I want to bring us back to the context of where we are. So all along the prophets were saying, Because you have disobeyed me, I'm going to allow other nations to come in, and they're going to take you away, and they're going to scatter you. And Judah, the southern kingdom, consisting of of the two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, were taken away to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar began to lay siege uh, to Jerusalem. It took several years. Eventually, um, they were able to knock down the walls. They came in, and they utterly destroyed um, the temple. And, and it just was gone. And, and the walls of the temple, everything connected with it. They took a lot of the stuff that was inside of that. And just, just everything was gone. And so they have been gone. And they were told that they would be gone for a period of time of 70 years. And so for 70 years, Jerusalem, the city, its gates, its walls, the temple literally lay in ruins. And so now, um, from what we understand, a half a million people had gone away into captivity the first wave of the remnant that came back was about 50,000. So this is a dramatic change to this nation. So half a million go away, 50,000 come back. Many of those that went away died in Babylon or in Persia. 
And so this first group of people, 50,000, come back, and they lay the foundation of the temple. If you lay the foundation of the temple, that means this, that the old foundation is what? It's been gone. It's been destroyed as well. So they have laid a new foundation of the temple in the same place, but they've laid that. And it's an incredible, remarkable moment. So that's kind of what happens um, leading up to where we are right now. So look with me now in verse 11. So they've laid the foundation, the priests and their their uniform and all that stuff, and trumpets are being played, and, and they've got symbols, and they're praising the Lord according to the direction of David. So look at 11. And they sang responsively. Let me just stop there for a moment. Nobody came along and said, okay, y'all better sing. This was such an amazing moment. The temple has been gone for 70 years. There's been no singing in the temple. There's been no worship in the foundation because they've been gone. And so now the foundation has been laid, and it's an incredible moment. And so nobody's having to be motivated to worship. And so responding to the moment, they sing and they worship. So let's look at the next thing. So they, 11, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So the old men, the text says, wept with a loud voice when they saw that the foundation had been established. Now I want to talk about a couple of things because I think it's really important to see this. Solomon's temple, if you've ever read about it, was absolutely amazing. It was the most skilled architects, the most skilled workmen, the most skilled um, uh, workers on the columns and, and the, all the stuff that went in, the gold and the silver and all of the things that were there was absolutely so amazing. And it was an incredible thing to behold. Solomon spared no expense in building that. So when the temple was destroyed um, through the Babylonians, all of that stuff was gone. And so now it's up. But there were men that have come back. They had lived through those 70 years. And they're old men. Some of them are priests. Some of them had served, and they had loved God uh, while they were gone. And now they've come back, and as the foundation is, is there, and, and they start to worship, one of the incredible things that happened is those men broke down and cried because they remembered what it was like with Solomon's temple. And now, at this moment, they, I think that they are thinking back on what could have been. And I think all of us have those moments in our lives where we think back and we think about the choices we made, how we lived our lives, and the destruction that came because of the sin and the things that had happened and taken place in our life. And they have maybe a moment of great regret. We didn't, our fathers didn't walk with God, and this is a result of that. And so we've wasted all of these years, all of this time, because we didn't choose to walk with God. But then I think the younger generation, there seems to be a little bit of differentiation in the text of those who had seen Solomon's temple. There was a brokenness about them. But those who saw this new foundation laid, it did something in them to think about the future. And what they thought about was, is that, that yes, not so glorious past, bad past, the destruction the deportation and sending, uh, being sent away. But now there's a hope for the future. 
We have laid the foundation of the temple. We will begin to worship again. And so there's weeping and there's shouting in this moment in regard to the establishing of the foundation here. But here's what happened. About two years later, they've got the foundation and they're continuing to do some more things, but there's some Samaritan opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. The Samaritans want to help, and the Jews say, you're not going to help because while we were gone, you intermarried with other people, and, and, you've, and you've been connected with their gods. And so they didn't allow the Samaritans to rebuild the temple. Well, the Samaritans didn't like that, so they sent word of opposition to Darius in Persia, the king who had allowed him to come back, that there's problems here. And for 14 years, after this great emotional moment, great moving moment of the laying of the foundation, where there's weeping and there's shouting, for 14 years, the building of the temple just stops. And everybody naturally turns to themselves. They make sure that they build nice houses for themselves. They don't give. They plant their crops. And so in that 14 years of stoppage, God speaks at the end of that to Haggai, and Haggai goes to the people, and all of chapter 1 is that message where Haggai says, listen, the lifeblood of our church, of, of the people of God as the Jews, is the worship of God at the temple. And the temple's lying in ruins, but we're making sure that everything in our life is really good, but we've allowed the temple to lie in ruins. So in chapter 1, Haggai gives his first message, and he tells the people, you must seek God and his righteousness, same phrase and same words. He doesn't say that, but the same thing Jesus said. And then God will bring the blessing. Don't try to get the blessing and do things and kind of ask God to come along if God wants to come along. That's not how it works. You seek God first in his kingdom, and then God adds the blessing. Well, here's what happens if we come to our text today. So immediately they hear the word from Haggai. They recognize it's from God. And so um, God tells them, Go gather wood in the hills, bring it back, and start to rebuild the temple. So the indication is over about a three-week period of time, they must have been gathering things, and they began to rebuild the temple. And then watch this. They're rebuilding the temple. And 27 days later, into the rebuilding of the temple, their hearts sink. And there's another, there's another moment of not fully stopping, but there's a setback that's there where they need God to speak in their midst again and to call them back to the place that they need to. So I want you to go to Haggai now. Haggai chapter 2. Go to Matthew and go left. Again, if you're wondering where Haggai is, third book to the left of Matthew. And we're going to read verses 2 through 9 and look at this second message from Haggai to the people. It goes down to verse 9. So in the seventh month, it's October now, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Well, how do you see it now? Is, is, not, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Here's why. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I'm with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the, and the latter glory, listen to nine, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So let me just talk about a few things before we really get into the text. So Haggai becomes this voice, as I said last week, he becomes an alarm clock. None of us like alarm clocks, but they are necessary in our lives to kind of rouse us from our sleeping. And so he becomes, in this 14-year stopping of the rebuilding of the temple, the stopping of worship, and just nothing is happening and taking place, he becomes this loud alarm clock just ringing into the nation to say this, get back to the task of rebuilding the temple. So the people began to do that. And so he becomes this voice of comfort, this voice of direction, of moving the nation forward. And he has this unique privilege that, that the end of chapter 1 says this, that he began to, his message began to stir the hearts of the people. It stirred Zerubbabel's heart. It stirred the high priest's heart, Joshua. And then it stirred the heart of the remnant. And so everybody was on board. Yes, let's make God center the central part of our lives again. Let's rebuild the temple, and we're going to, not focus on ourselves, we're going to focus on this. And so Haggai becomes this voice to get the people back to the task of what they need to do. But he does this, watch this, and God always does this. I love verse 2 of chapter 2. There's a preposition there that if you're not careful, you just skim over it. And you get caught up in all of these crazy names of these Old Testament people. Three times he says this, and the word of the Lord came to, and the word of the Lord came to, speak to, speak to. And this, this phrase, to, means this, that there was something that the people needed coming from the heart of God, and that was the personal nature of God speaking to them. So something had happened. They've been working. It's 27 days later. They're rebuilding the temple. There's great energy and excitement. And I don't know if you've ever been there before. You ever had a home project that you're doing? You get real excited. About three weeks into that home project, you're like, why did we decide to do this ourselves and not hire it out? Whatever the case is. And you look at it and you just go, oh my gosh, this is going to be an overwhelming task. And this is what happened with the people. They're 27 days in. Deeply excited deeply moved and now they begin to look at what they're doing and watch this you can't miss this listen to this this is critical for this second message from Haggai they began to think back of what Solomon's temple looked like they began to look before their eyes and they began to realize this ain't gonna be Solomon's temple we don't have his resources. We don't have his workmen. We don't have the amount of people to go and gather stuff. We don't have the money. And they began to think about this. What, is, what we're about to do is going to be, watch, less than something that's going to be honoring to God. Because it's not going to rise to the level of Solomon's temple. And so what they needed was God to speak into their midst again to say, no, it's not about Solomon's temple. It's about your generation and what I want to do in your generation. You're not going to be able to do that, but I'm going to do a new work in the midst of you that's going to be even greater than what happened when the kingdom was united under Solomon. 
This new temple that they're going to build, God's going to put His glory in it in a way that it hadn't been there even with Solomon's temple. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But here's what the people needed. Their hearts sank when they realized that they were overwhelmed with the task. We are not going to be rebuilding Solomon's temple. This is going to be less than. And it may have been some of the old men who didn't mean anything negative by it. They may have said something like this. Boy, this sure ain't going to be Solomon's temple. And that could have filtered its way down to the people. And the people could have gone, yeah, I guess it's not. I've heard about that. Yeah, I saw that. It's not. And it just, this discouragement settled into the people of God. And so what did they need? Well, they needed God to speak. Because when God speaks, there's a stirring and a moving and a drawing us near to him. And this is exactly as what is present here. Now, let me just make one, one other point before we move to the next point. God knows all things. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said this, before we even pray, God knows what we're about to pray. David said this, before a word is on my tongue, God, you know it all together. So God, watch this, God knows what's settling into their hearts. Boy, we are not going, they may have been, man, working hard, working hard, working hard, and looked at one another, and, and somebody may have said, boy, man, this is not going to be Solomon's temple. Yeah, I know, I heard about Solomon's temple, and, and that's just discouragement settled in all the workers, and they realize this is going to be, watch, again, I did it a while ago, this is going to be less than something that's going to honor God. We can't recover from the past. We can't do that. The past is too awful. The destruction that's there, the ruins that's there. So what we're going to rebuild is not ever going to measure up and it's not going to be good enough. And God knows, watch this, God knows what's in their heart and he knows he needs to speak to them again. So he comes to Haggai and he says, Haggai, go tell the people this. And I want you to speak to Zerubbabel. And I want you to speak to Joshua, the high priest. And I want you to tell all the people that I'm with you and I'm going to be with you as you do this. So you get back to the work and you do what I've called you to do. And he calls them, thirdly, I want you to see this this morning, he calls them to perseverance. And there's a power that's connected to perseverance. Thomas Edison, the 10,000th time he tried to create the light bulb, went home that night, told his wife when he got in, tried to create the light bulb again today. Guess what? Didn't create it. Wife says back to him, well, are you discouraged? He said, no, I'm not discouraged. I now know, I now know 10,000 ways not to build the light bulb. There's a lot of things in our life are that way. It's just a matter of perspective, and we need to get, watch, we need to get God's perspective, not ours. Ours is always shorter and less than and not as powerful as what God's perspective on the moment is. Look at verse 4, first two words. Yet now, yet now, and he tells them, be strong. He's going to tell them to be strong three times. Zerubbabel, be strong. Joshua, be strong. Remnant, be strong. And so yet now, there's this idea of the past is this, but I want to do something in you. But you've got to move forward in what I have called you to do. And sometimes, honestly, if we're honest, and we ought to be honest always, it's hard to move forward when you face something that seems so overwhelming. And as they're rebuilding the temple, the task seems overwhelming. How are we going to do this? We don't have the money. We don't have the resources. The kingdom was united, all 12 tribes, when Solomon built this. We're just 50,000 who've come back. Our crops are failing. Our vineyards are not thriving. 
How are we going to do this? We don't have the resources to be able to accomplish this. And yet, God, I think, was wanting them to see, no, if you'll trust in me, and I will carry you through. I've got the resources. You don't, but I do. So I've called you to the task. You trust me. Walk in obedience with me, which means rebuild the temple, and I will provide exactly what you need in this. So we come to the, mar- the, the month of October. In the month of October, there are three really significant things in the Jewish calendar. First day of the month of October, Feast of Trumpets. On the tenth day is the Day of Atonement. And then there's the Feast of the Tabernacles that goes from the 15th through the 21st. So on the 21st, on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, God speaks to Haggai, and Haggai comes to the people, and he comes to the leaders, and he says, this is what God wants to say to you. He wants you to press on, and he wants you to move forward in what God has called you to do. Now, I was thinking this week back at my life of ministry. I was 20 years old when a small church in North Amarillo took a took a risk in hiring me to be their youth pastor I'd only given testimonies I'd never led a Bible study before and they hired me crazy people Christians sometimes hired me to be the youth pastor there and and I didn't know how to speak my grandfather was a pastor in the Amarillo area where I was living so I went to my grandfather and said hey I need I, I got to start doing Wednesday night Bible study what should I do and he said see that file over there all my sermons are in there so I went over to my grandfather's file and started pulling out sermons, and for months I just taught my grandfather's sermons, read them, learned. Then I was a part of something. John MacArthur used to have this this book club that you could get his sermons. They'd come in this little booklet with uh, cassette tapes. Do you all know what cassette tapes are? Okay, you heard of those. And so so I would get a cassette tape in, in the mail with this little booklet, and I began to teach those to my youth group, and that's kind of how, how I cut my teeth on on teaching and learning about those things. But if you were to ask me back in 1986 in November when I became a youth pastor, if you were to ask me, what do you think, Doak, is going to be the greatest place of struggle and opposition to you in your life? Is it going to be outside the church or is it going to be within the church? As a dumb 20-year-old, I would have said, oh, it's going to be the culture. It's going to be my greatest problem. It's going to be people outside the church. And now I'm almost 54, and I would tell you this, that my greatest struggles have not been the culture. The greatest struggles is within the church, and I think it's kind of always been that way. And it kind of sounds like this. Yeah, I'd like that. It sounds just like that. Bunch of whiny Christians, okay? Anyway. <clears throat> oh, we've tried that before, and it didn't work. Or it could have been like this exiled people come back now you should have seen solomon's temple now that was a temple this new one is going to be hardly worth calling a temple compared to the old one or it's sometimes people say this in our day and time boy that church on the other side of town or that church in that other city boy they've really got it going on implying that you don't have it going on or it sounds something like this why don't you offer this or it could have sounded something like this This temple isn't as big as temples as Solomon's temple was. This temple doesn't have all the fancy stuff, the gold and the fancy workmanship. Because as you know, in today's day and time, bigger is always what? Better. That's what people say. It's not really the case. 
And there's all kinds of things that the people of God can say. And when sometimes if we're not careful, listen, if we're not careful, we begin to say things and it settles into the people of God. And we begin to think, yeah, God can't overcome our lack of resources. God can't do anything. And we just settle into thinking, well, this is just the way it is. And things are never going to change. And so and Haggai speaks to Zerubbabel, he speaks to the remnant, he speaks to Joshua, and he says this, no, stay at the work, you've got to persevere, you can't give up, because God knows what is going to come, and so trust Him, trust Him in this, but here's the problem, and this is the point of the first part of, or the, this second message from Haggai, and you really need to listen to me right now. Because I think this just screams out of the text. And those of us who are older, we know this to be true. If you're a student in the room this morning, you will come to know this to be true. When I was 18 years old, I had a vision for my life as a freshman college student. I was walking with God and as best I could. I loved God. I kind of sensed that God was calling me into the ministry. And I created in my mind what my future life was going to look like. The type of church I would have. The thousands and thousands of people that would be coming. The size of the building. The books that I would write. The conferences that I would go speak at. And I had this vision of what my future was like. And here I am today. And so the question is, did I fail? Is this a disappointment? Well, if we're not careful, our flesh will say, yeah. But here's the reality. We plan our course, but the Lord does what? He plans our steps. And so as I stand before you today, I don't stand before you perfect, you know that. But I stand before you as someone who along the way I had this grand vision of my life, but God had another thing for me, and that was His purpose. And His purpose for, for me to stand here this morning. It wasn't to be at a mega church, it was to be here it was for us to be on mission together, taking the gospel to the nations, from our neighborhoods to the nations. It was this moment. And so if you're here in this room today, you may be like the remnant that came back. And their hearts sunk when they thought, we will never be able to go back to the glory days of Solomon's temple. Look what we're building. What a great disappointment this is. Instead of seeing it as, okay, there's nothing. Listen to me. Listen to me today. There is nothing anybody in this room today can do about something years ago except learn from it. Now, we all know this. If we could go back, would we not make some other decisions? Absolutely. We can't, though. We don't get to go back. But we, what we have is this moment right now. So what are we going to do in this moment right now? This moment must be, okay, God, I'm going to surrender my heart to you because your purposes align me with life. My purposes align me with my glory, and it's so short-lived. And so, God, I want your glory. And so they get caught up and their hearts sink, thinking, this will never be Solomon's temple. And so instead of seeing that God was going to do something now in their generation, and he was going to do something, we'll see in a moment, with this temple that they're building in the future that was so amazing, that didn't happen with Solomon's temple, with all of its fancy externals. God was going to do something in the simplicity of this temple that was absolutely 
amazing. Now, I want to share a couple of quotes that I read this week. And I just, the point now is this, the past becomes this great distraction for us if we are not careful. Spurgeon, writing of this, says this, The smallness of our gifts may be a temptation to us. We are consciously so weak and so insignificant compared with the great God and His great cause that we are discouraged and we think it a vain attempt to attempt anything. And the enemy contrasts our work with that of others and with that of those who have gone before us. We are doing so little as compared with other people. Therefore, let us just give up. We cannot build like Solomon. Therefore, let us not build at all then. Yet, brethren, there is a falsehood in all of this, for in truth, nothing is worthy of God. The great works of others and even the amazing productions of Solomon all fell short of his glory because God is not a building. He's God. And so we get caught up in thinking, gosh, if I just, man, if I could look better, if I dressed better, if our building was better, if, if our parking lot was better, if, if this was better, if we didn't have skunks crawling underneath our kids' building, and if we didn't have this, and just all the stuff that we could say, if, 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 if. And God's just saying, how about me? How about me? How about just trusting me and doing the work and let me bring you to the place that I need to bring you? So you trusted me in the moment. And if we're not careful, this road, this road of longing for the glory years can bring depression in life. God, I had these great plans. I was going to be at this level of money and this kind of house and this kind of car. And my car is 15 years old and, and I constantly have to work with it. And I just, I want to remind you and I, we are where we are because God orders our steps. If we were in control of our life, I can't believe I'm fixing to quote this, but I'm going to quote it. Garth Brooks sang a song. <laughs> I thank God for what? Unanswered prayer. There are some things in our life that we longed for that are good that didn't come true. Because we'd have gotten lost along the way. Is it okay to dream big? You know, you hear this in churches all the time. Dream big for God. Well, dream big for God, but He's going to order your steps anyway. You're not in control of the dreams. You're not. We're not in, by the way, not part of the sermon, but a point here. We're not in control of anything. Nothing. The breath we're breathing right now, we are not in control of it. God could take it away right now if He wanted to. So the call upon our lives is to yield and to not get caught up in a past that doesn't have anything that we need. So if you're caught back there thinking, my life can never have a great future, I want to say to you today, yes, it can. And here's why. And God tells them this. God knows their hearts have sunk. He knows that they, he knows what they're talking about. He knows what's there. This is not going to be Solomon's temple. Oh, my goodness, what, what, what are we going to do? And they're all caught up in that. And so God tells them, let me tell you what you need. And God knows what we need. And so God tells them this. Look at the text, verse 4 and 5. It says this. So yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And so he tells them this. Be strong, not in your own strength, but be strong in me. 
You trust in me. I'm going to bring this about. And the people had the wrong attitude and the wrong perspective of what was going on. They were weak because they had gotten their focus off of the Lord. They would be strong again if they put the focus back on the Lord. And so, so they had lost this focus. This is just like, again, we just seem to never learn the same lessons. We have to learn them over and over again. They come to the edge of the promised land. Twelve spies go into the promised land. They come back and report to Moses and the people. Yep, yep, God's right. Land flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. Here's some of the fruit. Look how big this fruit is. How awesome this is. It's great. But there's really big people that live in that land. I mean, they're descendants of these people. And, and, and boy, they're big and they're this. And they've got these fortified cities and they have all this. And ten of the people reported to the people and said this. Can't do it. Can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb said, oh, no, 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 hold the phone. We can do it. Let's, let's go today because you know why? God told us that's our land and we're here and we can take the people because his presence is with us. And so, so they just have gotten back to that. We can't complete the temple. It's going to be less than uh, something that's going to honor God. The past was greater. I'm not going to have a future because of what happened in the past. I can't do it. And God just says to them, stop it. I want to remind you, I am with you. I'm with you. It's not about Solomon and all of his great workers and all of Solomon's great wisdom and all of Solomon's great resources. It's about me. I was about... How do you think Solomon got his stuff? Me. And I'm with you and I'm going to do something in your midst that's greater than Solomon. So leave that behind. And I want to remind you, I am with you. So be strong. Trust in me. And then he tells him this. And stay at the work. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't let your heart sink. Thinking that God can't do something with this new temple. That it's less than. That God can't bring you out of a bad past into a great present and a great future. Don't have that kind of thinking. Stay in the work, for it is vital. It is vital. So he tells them, be strong. Stay at the work. And by the way, when we stay at the work, we're not sufficient for the work, but God is. Listen to what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient in, in, in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So we don't have it, but God does. So we just want to agree with God and yield with God and walk with the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. So he tells them this. I want to remind you what you need as you do the work. I want to remind you that I'm with you. My presence is with you. And then he tells them this. He says this, he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt. So he's got this promised covenant, his word. He says this, I will always be your God and you will always be my people. Were they always faithful? No, they weren't, but God is always faithful. And so he tells them, listen, my presence is going to be with you. And here's why I told you it would. I told you you were mine, and so you're mine. So I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. And so he gives them and reminds them of this promise. I made a covenant with you. When I brought you out to be my people, I'm still holding up my end of that. 
You haven't always done that, but I am doing that. I am I'm reminding you my presence will be with you because I've given my word to you. I've made a covenant. I've made a promise to you that I will, I will be with you. David Livingstone was this an unbelievable missionary in Africa. And he spent years out in the wilderness investing in people that he didn't speak the language with. They were hostile with him. So often they were hostile with him. He got this honorary doctorate one day from the University of Glasgow, and, and he, he, he said this. He said, on that occasion, he said, would you like for me to tell you what supported me through all the years of exile among the people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude toward me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And Livingstone closed his speech by saying this. On those words, I staked everything everything and they never failed so God's promise is listen you're my people and I'm going to be with you always so you trust in me you do the work I'm going to remind you that I'm with you now let me say this we live in the new covenant and it's better than the old covenant so listen, listen to these words. In the, under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was among the people. But under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is where? In the people. In the people. It's an amazing, amazing reality. Listen to Hebrews 8, 6, and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been falseless, faultless, falseless, what is that? Faultless, here we go. There would have been no occasion to even look for a second. So we live in a day and time where the promise of God is better than the promise He made to these people. So God is telling them, do the work, and here's why. I've told you I'm always going to be with you. Don't worry about the Samaritans. Don't worry about you don't have enough resources. I'm with you. I own all the gold and silver in the world. I own it all, and I'm going to bring it to this place. And so verses 6 and 9, we don't have time to go through all of that, but verses 6 through 9 of Haggai 2 are prophetic about the second coming of Jesus. Coming to Jerusalem to establish His kingdom in the millennial kingdom where He will reign on earth in a temple. And before that happens, He will shake the earth and He will shake the heavens before this happens. So let's read it, and then we're going to point out a couple things as we close. Verse 6. So he's just told them, my spirit remains in your midst because I'm there in the covenant. Fear not. Don't fear. When you know God, there's fear goes. And then he says in verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures or the desires of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Don't miss nine. And the latter glory of this house, this new temple, shall be greater than the former. Solomon's temple, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, 6 through 9 is prophetic, mainly 6 and 7, about this future kingdom where Christ returns. He shakes the heavens and the earth. 
He establishes His kingdom here on the earth. The earth is replenished. It, it thrives. This is where kids can pick up cobras and they don't bite them, adders. This is where the lion lays down with the lamb and the lion doesn't eat the lamb. And there's this amazing thing that happens as the, after all of the judgments of God that you see in Revelation that as Christ sits on His throne in Jerusalem, watch this, watch this, watch. The nations are longing for Jesus, but they don't know how to find Him. And so they worship false idols and they go to temples of, and they have false gods and they have false scriptures and they have all of this stuff. And this phrase here, when it talks about <clears throat> the treasures of the nations, also means desires of the nations. And in the millennial kingdom, we know this is future. Isaiah writes about this. That once Christ establishes his kingdom in the millennial, in the millennial kingdom, the nations, you know what they do? Isaiah writes about this. They bring their treasures to the desire of the nations who is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, Jesus himself, and they will bring that. And there will be a temple in the millennial kingdom where the nations bring their silver and their gold and all of this, and Christ is exalted as he sits on his throne for a thousand years. So watch. Sometime in 550 B.C., somewhere around there, wherever the case may be, Haggai wrote these words. And sometime in the future, Haggai, prophetic, Christ is going to come and he's going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He is the desire of the nations. Listen. He is the desire of the nations and they don't know how to come to him. They don't know how to get to him. They don't know what to do. So what did Jesus tell us to do? Go tell them. Go tell them in Albania. Go tell them in Ukraine. Go tell them in the Dominican Republic. Go tell them across the street. Go tell them because he's their desire and they don't know what to do with it. And so they waste their lives in treasures of this earth that will not last. And yet what they are longing for is Jesus. Jesus. Well, let's talk about this for a moment as we close. A place filled with His glory. So, so God says, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9 is key. The latter glory of this house, the new temple, shall be greater than the former, Solomon's temple, says the Lord of hosts. Here's what the people have been thinking. This temple isn't going to be as big as Solomon's. This temple doesn't have all the gold and fancy workmanship that Solomon's did. But God says through Haggai, this new temple is going to be better than the old temple. It's not going to be as fancy, but it's going to be better because I'm going to fill it with my glory. Therefore, the people did not need to be discouraged because they didn't have the money for the building project. They simply needed to boldly trust God with every resource. And watch, even with their little, give generously with their little. You and I should give to God and trust Him with it. My, he's not a relative of mine, I wish he was, but a guy named Hudson Taylor was this missionary in China. And he wrote a story in one of his books, and I want to read it to us, it's real short, listen to this. As a young man... He preached in boarding houses in the poor slums of London, and this is before he went to China. 
And a poor man asked Taylor to come back to his room and pray for his wife who had suffered complications from childbirth and was near death. The man had no money at all and he couldn't afford to pay a priest to come and perform last rites. So he went to Hudson Taylor and asked him to come. So Taylor went to the man's room and found the heartbreaking situation. There were several children uh, standing around. The afflicted mother and her three-day-old baby were in the living, or li- living there in absolute filth and squalor with absolutely no food and no money. Taylor knew he had a $20 coin in his pocket that would meet their needs, but it was also all the money that he had for himself. So he began to speak to the family about God. When the Lord spoke to him of his own heart, you hypocrite. Telling these unconverted, unconverted people about a kind and loving Father in heaven and not prepared yourself to trust that Father in heaven with $20. Taylor wished, he said, that I had two $10 pieces. I would give 10 and then I would have enough for myself. And he was taken aback but when he decided to lead the family in the Lord's Prayer. And as soon as he said the words in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, the Lord convicted him of his hypocrisy again. He said he struggled through the prayer under tremendous conviction. He then gave the Father $20 piece. That provision saved the mother's life. And she lived. And guess what God did in Hudson Taylor's life? He provided for him. So the people are like, we don't have the resources to build Solomon's temple. God just said, would you build it and would you trust me? Because I'm going to do something in this temple that wasn't done in Solomon's temple. Now this temple stands for hundreds of more years. And Herod comes along and Herod expands this temple. And Herod expands it and it's pretty glorious. Bigger than Solomon's temple. Watch. Don't miss this. So here the workers are, they're overwhelmed, we can't finish this, it's not going to be as great as Solomon's temple, and God says, build it, because I'm going to do something in it that wasn't in Solomon's temple, someone's coming that's going to be in this temple, who's the great one of glory? Guess who stepped into that temple that they were about to build? Jesus. He would heal a blind man one day in the pools of Siloam. He would stand in the temple and teach and sit and teach and people would gather around him. God himself was going to, hundreds of years in the future, step into that temple and this is what God's telling them. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about Solomon. I'm going to do something. Do the work now. And, and I'm going to step into that temple in the first century. And Jesus himself was there Watch this church, listen to me. We sow, we sow, we sow, we sow, we sow. In faithfulness we pray, we water, we pray, we water, we pray, we water, we sow, we pray, we invest. What if, what if, in our lifetime, we never saw the fruit of all that we've been doing these last 10 years? What if, 20 more years, we're, st- we're still here together doing church as life point, we don't see the fruit of it, and after we're gone, Those who are leading LifePoint see the fruit of it. Are we okay with that? That generation was. They weren't going to see, they weren't going to see Jesus step into that temple, but there was a generation that would see Jesus step into that temple. 
And so God is calling his people to not be, God, you have to do it now. God's calling his people to faithfulness, whether we see it in our lifetime or not. It makes you wonder sometimes if, if God's looking at American believers and just saying this, who's willing to do the work where you don't see the reaping? You just do the sowing. Because he's, he's looking for a group of people who are willing to trust him no matter what. And then lastly, he just says this, and then I'm going to bring my peace into this place. That's the last part he says in verse 9. And I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Spurgeon said this, he said, Brethren, I may add, Christ is certainly the desire of all nations in this respect, that we desire him for all nations. Oh, that the world were encompassed in his gospel. Would, would God, the sacred fire, would run along the ground that the little handful of corn on top of the mountains would soon make its fruit to shake like Lebanon. Oh, when will it come? When will it come that all the nations shall know him? Let us pray for it and let us labor for it. So that's the second message to Haggai, and I shared this with the last group, and I'll pray. We don't know exactly when this was written, but some, sometime in 550 B.C., somewhere in there, all of this was happening and taking place. Here we are in 2019. God's Word is living and active. This little book of Haggai, four messages, it's so relevant to our generation. That God is calling us to be the kind of people to trust Him fully, to walk in obedience with Him. No matter what, no matter if cost, to walk and to do the work that is necessary. And God's peace comes. That's not the absence of conflict. Peace comes when God's presence fills a place. That's peace. There's going to be conflict here, folks. So we live in a war zone. Earth is a war zone. But even in the midst of the war zone, because of the presence of God and the promise of God to his people, there's a peace that comes to settle. I think this also speaks about the millennial kingdom as well. The world will be at peace for a thousand years. Is that not amazing? All right, let's pray.